would have true life and peace with God. That's what Advent's about. It's understanding the blessing and the gift we've been given in this child. And so uh, we continue to take a look at the life of Christ through the Gospel of Mark together. And so feel free to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. If you're going to use the Bible in the, uh, in the seat back in front of you, feel free to grab that, turn to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 41 together. But before I read these verses for us, I wonder uh, if you could think of a moment in your life where you've ever been surprised to learn something about someone that was close to you, someone you knew well. Right? I, I wasn't until after Tar and I had been married for maybe even a few years before I realized and, and learned that she doesn't like cilantro. I had gone to dinner and, or gone to a restaurant and picked up some burrito bowls and, and thought this is going to be awesome. We'll have a little date night together. And after her first bite of that burrito bowl, her gag reflex kicked in. She had such a reaction to it that, that I was in shock. I'm like, I'm, I've been married to this woman for a few years. How did I not know that you don't like cilantro? I love it, right? How do you not love it? Can you think of a story where, where you've been shocked to learn something about someone that, that you were, you've been close to and you know, and, and it's just... It's shocking to you to not know this about this person. How do I not realize this person? Do I really know them, right? Maybe, maybe you've, you didn't realize that they don't like to chew gum or, or they can't whistle or, or roll their tongue or ride a bike or swim or, or, or maybe they speak multiple languages and you're like, hey, how, how did I not know that you speak multiple languages, right? It's that surprise and shock. And something like this happens in... Jesus's life and his relationship with his disciples, the, the disciples who had witnessed many miracles that Jesus performed, they'd, they'd seen him healing people and, and, and caring for and, and cleansing lepers and speaking with authority. They've, they'd seen Jesus doing all these things, and yet somehow, and we're going to see this in the passage, they're left saying, who is this man? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And though Mark doesn't include the answer to the disciples' question, which we're going to read in a minute, though he doesn't include that in our passage or in his gospel at all, I think it's implied. And hopefully by the end of our time together, we'll all be able to answer that question in the way that I think Mark intends us to in sharing this story from Jesus' life with us. So again, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 and follow along as I read for us from verses 35 to 41. Hear God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And, leave, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that it is revealed to us through the life of Jesus, but also through your word of, of your prophets and, and those who had come before him. Lord, I pray that we would come to know Jesus, that we wouldn't be left saying, who is this man, but we would see Jesus and know Jesus 
in such a way that our faith would grow and be firmly rooted in, in him. So Lord, may your word take root in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, something unique about the Gospel of Mark is not just that it's the shortest of the four Gospels, but, but Mark wrote his Gospel as a storyteller, a little bit uniquely different than the, the approach that the other Gospel writers take, but he's a, a storyteller, and, and so his Gospel is the true story of the life of Jesus. It's not fairy tale, it's not myth, it's not legend, it's, it's a, a historical, factual account of the life of of Jesus. One way that scholars are able to identify this in Mark's writing is in the details that he includes in the gospel. It's details like the other boats in our story or the fact that Jesus was asleep on a cushion that don't actually add to the story itself. They don't give meaning to the story, but they account for being kind of a historical record of what was happening on this day and what was going on and, and the context that, that we're able to look back, and many scholars would agree, that, that they really just amount to being facts that help us realize this is a true historical story from the life of Jesus. Consider for a moment the story of when Tara gave birth to our son Max. Now, when retelling the, the birth story for Max, the detail of time that would be most important for his birth story would be what time he was born, or, or even how long Tara was in labor for, right? The, the, the detail of what time we left for the hospital doesn't really add to the story of Tara's strength and courage in, in giving birth and how long she labored for, or, or really even tell us anything about Max himself. However, when I tell the real story of Max's birth, I like to include the time that we left for the hospital. Why? Because it was midnight, and because it was midnight and my wife was in labor, I could run a few red lights on the way to the hospital, and I felt like I had an excuse, right? But, but those were just historical facts, right? Those are just details that say this was a real story. They don't, actually, they don't actually flavor the birth story of Max. They don't tell how was Tara's labor or how long she was in labor or at what time Max was actually born in the day. See, my, my point here is to say that when Mark tells the story of Jesus' miracle to, to calm the wind and the waves, there are some details here that are included that just help us know that this was historically a, a historically factual event, that this happened, that this is not just some miraculous uh, miracle story that, 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 is, that is meant to teach us the, why the zebra has its stripes or something like that, right? This actually happened in Jesus' life. In verses 35 and 36, Mark tells us of Jesus' plan to cross the Sea of Galilee in the evening after spending the day preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. But guess what? Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus crosses the sea, because it's not important to the story. We learn that there are other boats that are there on the water with them, but, but guess what Mark doesn't do? He doesn't tell us what happens to these other boats or, or who's in these other boats. Basically, after verses 35 and 36, the other boats aren't in the picture anymore. They just tell us that this was a moment in Jesus' life when after preaching and teaching all day, he decides to cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and there's some other boats there with him that, that decide to go along. I, I say all this because I, I don't want us to get so caught up in the awe and the amazement of the miracle of what Jesus does and lose sight of Mark's intentionality 
to record history for us. Right? Like, th- there, is, there is something amazing that, that some people's rational minds wrestle with to believe that Jesus could actually do this. But, but G- uh, Mark's not presenting some, some, some kind of uh, moment that, that is meant like a myth or a legend. He's recording the life of Jesus as it actually happened. And there's something for us to pay attention to in the, the awe and the amazement of the miracle. So even, even how Mark records the storm in verse 37 tracks with history. So the, the reality of the situation there in Galilee is that, that there's nothing really miraculous about this storm. These were not uncommon storms. Well, I should say they were not unfamiliar, right? They happened just based on geographically where the Sea of Galilee is placed. See, the, the Sea of Galilee was like, it was like a basin. It was like a, a, a bathtub almost where the high mountains all around it, and then it would dip down into the basin where the Sea of Galilee is. And, and what would happen is that this cooler weather would come up over the mountain and then clash with the warmer weather by the sea, and these sudden and violent windstorms would rip up. And, and would cause these, these torrential storms that, that uh, fishermen and others experienced on the Sea of Galilee. Unpredictable, uh, I can, can't see it coming, just happens quickly like that. So the fact that the, 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 the storm happens isn't the miraculous piece of this story, right? Some of your, your Bibles describe it as a, a great squall or a furious squall or a great windstorm. Either way, it shouldn't be hard for us to, to picture what's happening here. That this sudden storm just picks up and, and, and Jesus and his disciples find themselves in a very scary and frightening situation. What, what makes this situation even more dangerous is the type of boat that they're in when the storm hits. Now, you know, if we were to think of a fishing boat from modern eyes, we, we might see, you know, one of those boats with a big cabin at the front and the long flat uh, part of the back, and, and, you know, boats that are now built to weather some harder, harsher weather, especially here up in, in New England and the Northeast. But, but that's not the type of boat that, that Jesus and his disciples find themselves in when the waves start breaking into the boat, as Mark tells us. They're not, they're not breaking into a large boat with high walls. They're, they're breaking into a boat that was probably around, around the length of a UPS truck, that was built with flat bottoms so they could get into shallow water to help catch fish, that had lower sides on the, in the middle of the boat so that as they go to drag their, their net of fish into the boat, they don't have to drag it up over high walls, but they can more readily and easily drag their fish into the boat. I mean, just in that description, can you picture how easy it is for a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee where these, the wind is whipping around and, and waves are crashing about a boat, that, that the boat is quickly filling with water? But as I mentioned before, the, the miraculous part of our story isn't in this sudden and violent windstorm or, or in the type of boat that Jesus and his disciples are in or even who's on the water with Jesus. See, the, the truly miraculous part of the story isn't even the event, I would say, isn't even the event of Jesus calming the waves and settling the wind. I think the truly miraculous thing for us to pay attention to is the person that's revealed in the event. The the person of Jesus who is revealed in the midst of the event. I mean, 
don't get me wrong, I know that these are people that are in the boat with Jesus who have walked with him, they've, they've seen him do all these things. But Jesus reveals something about himself in this event, and I believe that's truly the miraculous thing. Uh, um, something we can probably resonate with at, 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 in Advent and at Christmas time when we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. The disciples see that Jesus is not just some man who can do some amazing things. So over the next few verses of our passage, Jesus is going to reveal something about himself to us. He's going to reveal himself, uh, uh, something about himself to his disciples, and through his disciples, something to us that I think is truly miraculous. And only then, when we come to realize who Jesus is, can we truly make him the object of our faith. Understand something. Knowing Jesus is not just a matter of reading our Bibles, but a matter of understanding that Jesus is who he claims to be, and he's the object of our faith to hold on to, to grab onto, and trust in. Take, a, take another look at verse 38 with me. Jesus was asleep on a cushion in front of the boat, and they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't, don't you care? Do you not care that we're perishing? And so right here is a question we need to wrestle with. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's one of three questions that Jesus invites us to pay attention to, to attend to, and, and, and to, to ask ourselves, who is this Jesus who is being revealed to us? They say, hey, hey Jesus, we're sinking here. Don't, don't you care? Don't you care that, that our death is coming quickly? That this boat's about to get swallowed up in the, the Sea of Galilee? So what, I, what I think we should notice is that the disciples' question is rooted in fear. The, the disciples' question is rooted in looking at the situation around them, their own circumstances, and, and being filled with fear. And so they come to Jesus enveloped in fear, and say, don't, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? Now, later on in the passage, Jesus introduces a second question, which we're going to get to in a few minutes, but, but he says to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? See, in Mark's gospel, he, he uses his gospel to show that for Jesus, fear and faith are opposites. Now, this is, this is a reality which I struggle with because I am a man who worries. I am a man who, who gets afraid when I face certain circumstances, right? And, and I think that none of us should condemn the disciples for being afraid. Because here's the thing, just like I kind of confessed to you, I think if, if we're all given the same chance, if we all find ourselves in that boat with Jesus, who's asleep in the front of the boat and there's waves crashing over and we can't keep up with the amount of water that's breaking into our boat, we'd all feel the same way. Each and every one of us deal with a fear of death because it's something that each and every one of us will face. There will come a time where we face the end of our time on this earth, and that scares us. Not being able to control when that time comes scares us. And so where faith comes into the picture is answering how do we deal with our fear of death? If fear is the opposite of faith, how do, we, how do we learn to live in faith and less in fear? I mean, think about this for a minute. We spend millions of dollars 
to not just extend the quality of our lives, but to also extend the, the quantity of the days of our lives. Not the soap opera, right? We want to know how can we have more and more days tacked onto our life. What do I need to do to, to make sure that I have plenty of those days? We buy elixirs, we buy creams, we buy pills, we buy vitamins, we, we go through treatments and exercise programs, all to make our lives better and longer. And what I want us to, to see is that, that it's not wrong to want to live longer or save a person's life or, or to improve the quality of our, our day-to-day lives, but but I think we have to think more deeply about this and understand that our reason for wanting to live longer is rooted in a fear of death. It's not that we love this life so much that we want to have more and more of it. It's rooted in the fear that we're afraid of that death coming. See, our fear of death shapes our pursuits in this life. It shapes and informs what things we pursue, the the security and comfort that could be ours if we just give a little more energy and attention to it. We seek after greatness and and status. We we, we try to gather together possessions and pleasure, all all in in a feeble attempt to build up security and comfort in this world. And yet, none of those things go with us when our time comes. And so for the disciples in the boat, the storm became a physical, a tangible trial that tested their faith in the person that they've been traveling with, the person that they had been witnessing perform signs and miracles. Would the focus of their attention be on their fear of death, or would it be faith in the powerful Son of God? And which leads us now to our second question, the question of Faith, which Jesus brings up in verse 40. He says, have you still no faith? See, faith in the gospel, Mark, it's not a matter of quantity. It's not so much like our money or responsibility or power. It's not measured in amounts you have or don't have. Right? Jesus doesn't say, do you still not have enough faith? Now, faith is something you either have or you don't have. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us that that if we have faith like a mustard seed, we have faith to move mountains. It doesn't matter the size of the or the quantity of the seed, but the fact that we have this seed that matters. Right? It, 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 it's, it's what makes a story later on in Mark where the father cries out to Jesus to come and help his, his sick and dying daughter. And, and Jesus says, he says to him, if you believe, and the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, Jesus is saying, if the object of your faith is in Jesus, then all things are possible. He doesn't say, if you believe enough in Jesus... Or, or if you believe rightly in Jesus, it says, if you believe in Jesus. See, the disciples here in Mark 4 have had the, they've had the privilege of watching Jesus up close, and yet they still fear the power of death as opposed to the power of Jesus. It tells us something about what's going on in the hearts and minds of the disciples. One pastor I read describes faith like this. Imagine you just fell off the edge of a cliff 
And on your way down, you see a branch that's strong enough to hold you sticking out of the cliff, but you don't actually know if it's strong enough, right? We just know from the telling the story that it's strong enough to hold you. So as you're falling down, you see this branch. Now the question is, you don't have time to, to think this through. As you're falling down, do you, do you reach out and grab the, the branch? Do you, do you have to be 100% certain that that branch will hold you in order for you to reach out and grab it? No, of course not, right? When you're falling and you see that branch, you grab it. You only have to have enough faith to grab onto the branch, to say this branch is the object of my trust. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. It doesn't matter how much you know about the branch. It just matters that you actually grab it and hold on to it. You see, Jesus is this branch. And, and his statement to them, his question to them, have you still no faith? invites them to think a little bit. How do you still not yet believe in me? After all you've seen and heard, the conversations we've had, how do you still not yet believe in me? See, I think that's exactly Jesus' point here in asking that question. He wants to say, do you not know me? Do you under not understand who I am? Do you not understand what power and authority I've been given? Because I think if they did know who Jesus was, if they did understand the power and the authority of the Son of God, if they did know and, and understand these things, they wouldn't be filled with panic and fear, but trust to just reach out and grab onto that branch. And this leads us to the third and final question, which is probably the most important question. The question about who Jesus is. And, and the reality is it's, it's, kind of, it's a question of surprise. It's that, it's that moment of, of how do we not know this about you moment, right? I, I shared a story with you all a few months ago of the first time Tara saw me go rollerblading, right? We, you know, we'd, again, we had kids at this point, And so we'd been married for long enough. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'd shared the story about how I used to play street hockey when I was younger or whatever. I don't know. I'm not sure. But we were visiting family in Maryland, and we wanted to do something with the kids. So we took them out to go skating, roller skating. And you could rent rollerblades at this rink, and so I did. I rented rollerblades, strapped them on, got out into the rink, and I did my thing, right? And, and, and at one point, I thought I'd show off, and I, I spun around and started skating backwards in front of Tara. And, and it was like the look in her face I mean, if I, could, if I could translate what her face said, it would be like, hey, who is this handsome and talented man I married, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what was going through her head. It's like, who is this man? I didn't know you could do that. How did you, I mean, what, such talent, such skill, right? See, similar to this, the disciples are caught off guard. They're surprised. They didn't realize, like, yeah, they're following Jesus. They're tracking with him. But they didn't know he could do that. They didn't know he had the power and the authority to, to control the, the wind and the seas and the, and the storms and creation. They didn't realize he was that kind of savior. They knew he could do miraculous things. They didn't know what that made him, right? Listen to the question they ask in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
See, their, their question, it's not a fact-finding question. They're not like, hey, what else do we need to know about Jesus? It was a, it was a, a reaction of awe and emotion, right? It filled them with fear. They're like, whoa, this, this man is more than what we thought he was. There's something to him that we don't yet know and understand. And, and, it, and to be honest, it scares us a little that even creation obeys him. Look one more, one more time at how Jesus handles the storm in verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and, sea to, uh, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. See, what we're talking about here is not just a storm slowing down and stopping over a period of time. If you've ever been to a lake in the summer and, and been swimming and a boat goes by and it creates this big wake behind it, and especially if you're in like a, an inner tube or something, it's kind of fun because you get to ride these big waves as they come by you, right? But as the, the boat gets further and further off in the distance, those waves become smaller and smaller. But, and so the, the lake settles down, doesn't it? But it takes time right? It takes, it takes a period of time, like five, ten minutes for it to really settle. And especially if, the, if it's windy out, it doesn't settle so easily, does it? See, that's, that's not how Jesus deals with the storm. See, when we read that the wind ceased and there was a great calm, what's being described is an immediate and supernatural calm. Almost like the, 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 the sea becomes like glass. And the quiet is so overwhelming because you go from this loud, windy storm to this quiet. It's more like if you're sitting in a hot tub and having a conversation with someone and, and, and someone suddenly turns the bubbles off and you find yourself yelling and you realize, wow, it's a lot quieter in here. I can turn my volume down. And the water settles really quickly. It goes from being like this tumultuous, roiling water to settled and calm very quickly. See, when, when Jesus rebuked the winds and the seas, it was like a, a switch had been thrown, and there was complete quiet and calm. Now, that is, that is miraculous. That is unheard of, unknown uh, in our world. Like, when else would you see something so quick and immediate happen on the water? But again, I don't think that's the miraculous thing. I think the miraculous is Jesus revealed to us in this event. Now, we've all been children and know what it means to be rebuked, some of us more so than others, right? But you've, you've been, the stories you hear of people driving along in a car and a parent's arm comes swatting out over the seat trying to get you to quiet down or stop doing what you're doing, right? It, it, it's, it's not this, a rebuke is not this gentle, okay, now kids, can you please settle down, please, if you don't mind? Right? It's not a, a gentle whispering. It's a stop it right now or else moment. Right? That, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying to the wind and the seas, stop it right now. That's what his rebuke is. He demands the wind and the sea to stop immediately. And guess what? They did. They obey him. And, and what Mark is picking up in this story is not just that Jesus has the, the power and the authority of God, but that Jesus is God. See, in, in, in those days, even beyond Christianity, it was common knowledge that only a God could control the wind and the seas. Only a God had authority over creation. And so by Jesus exhibiting his power and his authority 
over the wind and the seas, he's saying something about himself. But even more specifically, Mark uses a word here that should, that should give us a clue. He uses a Greek word, epitomizon, which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, right, where, they, where these 70 priests went and translated the, the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, Anytime that Jesus, that, sorry, that God, that Yahweh rebukes in the Old Testament, he uses the same word. And so by Mark attributing to Jesus the work of rebuking the wind and the seas, he's saying, Jesus, this man sitting in the boat, sleeping in the boat with you, is not just having the power and authority of God. He is God. He's Yahweh. Yahweh, who rebukes the nations and the foreign armies in Isaiah. It's in the Psalms where, where, where Yahweh created the world and rebukes the seas and channels them into rivers and streams. It's, it's found in, in the prophet Zechariah's writing, where, where God gives Zechariah a vision of Joshua standing before the throne of God, and, and Yahweh is busy rebuking Satan when he tried to bring accusation against Joshua. See, it's, it's clear to Mark, and he wants it to be clear to us, that not only does Yahweh alone have the authority and the power to rebuke the wind and the waves that Jesus does, but that Jesus is Yahweh. So when there's a great calm after the storm, the disciples' fear gives way to a new fear, and they ask, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? We're left with one answer. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the creator of all things. He is the strong son of God. That's our king, the king over the kingdom that he just spent an entire day preaching and teaching about is the very same one who has the authority to control the wind and the waves because he is Yahweh. See, church, this matters because many of us are, are, can become consumed with fear. We're consumed with insecurity and, 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 and discomfort in this world. We're afraid of our future. We're, we're concerned about the downward decline of our physical bodies toward death. It's not uncommon for us to look at the storms and the trials of our lives and we say, Jesus, don't you care that I'm perishing here? Don't, don't you care that I'm going through this? But guess what? Because to that question, Jesus asks us a question. Where is your faith? And he doesn't ask it in a judgmental way. He asks it in a way that invites us to think on this very thing. Where is your faith? Not where is this faith you think you have, but where are you putting your trust in? What is the object of your faith? What are you grasping out for when you're falling over that cliff? Is it your, your, your bank account or your track record at your company? Is it your reputation with other people in your life or, or, and what they think of you? Is it your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going? Or are you grasping out for that branch that's sticking out of the cliff? Because that branch is Jesus. All you have to do is grab on and he'll do the rest. That's what faith is. You don't have to fully know and understand who Jesus is. 
You don't have to have the perfect understanding of him. And and you, you don't even have to eliminate all your questions of doubt in your life. All you have to do is see Jesus, trust that he is the son of God and grab onto him and see what he can do in your life. See, Jesus invites us to make him the object of our faith. We don't have to figure out the why and the how and the when of our circumstances, our struggles, our trials. We don't have to figure all that out to put our faith in him. We merely need to reach out and take hold of him. It could be something as simple as as a breath prayer in the moment. There's, there's a prayer called the, the, the Jesus prayer called, uh, where, where, um, from the Psalms where we're invited to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's grasping onto the branch. It's not solving your problems. It's not, not, not giving a solution. It's trusting that, that God wants you to turn your attention to him in that moment to stop trying to work the problem and figure it out yourself, but say, I'm going to pause here. I'm going to grab onto that branch and say, Jesus, help me. It could be as simple as a a, a choice to say, I'm going to choose to think on him rather than focus on all the things I'm worried about. See, we don't have to overcome our fears and worries and then believe in him. The invitation is just to turn our hearts and minds toward him rather than the things that we're so worried about and the security this world attempts to offer us. See, Jesus is the salvation we've been waiting for. Your hearts have longed for an answer to the problems of this world. And I propose to you that in our passage this morning, Jesus is saying, I am he. I am the one. I am what makes this passage so miraculous. Right? He doesn't want his disciples to follow him because he can do amazing things. He doesn't want them to to want to follow him more just because, look at him, he can calm the wind and the waves. That's not what Jesus is inviting. He wants them to believe in him because of who he is. He's the Savior sent by God, preaching repentance and forgiveness to a world shrouded in darkness and sin. That's who Jesus is. He's the one sent by the Heavenly Father to come and tell us about repentance, the, the, the repentance that's offered to us, the forgiveness that's offered us through repentance and the peace we have with God through him alone. And so here's the thing. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you're thinking of another story then from the Bible, another person that was sent by God to preach a story of, of forgiveness through repentance. I imagine maybe you are thinking about it. Jesus isn't the first one that God has sent to preach a, a message of repentance and forgiveness and, and then ultimately redemption. If Jesus' experience on the Sea of Galilee sounds similar to another story from the Old Testament, you would not be wrong. You would be right because it sounds a lot to me like the story of the prophet named Jonah. Jonah, who was sent by God to preach repentance to a city of wicked people who were enemies of God, the people of Nineveh, Right? He was to walk into the city of Nineveh and proclaim to them that the judgment of God, the righteous and due judgment of God that would come upon them unless they repented of their wickedness, repented of their sin, and turned to him in faith. 
But Jonah, Jonah tries to run away from God's calling, right? We know that. We, we were taught this story in Sunday school. Jonah tries to run away to Tarshish, to, to run away from God's calling. And so he takes a ship in the opposite direction of, of, of Nineveh. So what does God do? God sends a great, the Bible describes it as a great windstorm that threatened to break up the ship they were sailing on. And, and guess what? what is, what's Jonah doing while all this is happening? He's sleeping. He's sleeping in the belly of the, sh- of the boat. He's sleeping, but then after they wake him up, after the, the crew wakes him up and they argue with him over the situation, you know what Jonah does? He tells the crew, toss him overboard as a way to save the ship and to save the crew. In other words, Jonah took upon himself the punishment of God to save others. But then something else happens. Jonah is swallowed up by his great fish, and he spends three days in the belly of the beast before he's spit out onto dry land, where he then dusts himself off and proceeds to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. And guess what happens? The city of Nineveh repents. They turn back toward God. They turn away from their wickedness and turn back toward God. Church, I think Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he is the true Jonah. He's the true one that's been sent by God to preach repentance and forgiveness and salvation through him. That that he himself would spend three days in the belly of the grave but then would rise three days later that he might offer us true and lasting peace, that he would take upon himself the punishment to save others from the wrath of God. All of this, that fear would no longer be our master, that we would no longer be slaves to fear, but that that Jesus would be our strong king. See, Jesus is more than a prophet like Jonah. He's Yahweh. He alone has the power to rebuke creation and it obeys him. This is our king. This is the one who went and spent three days in the belly of the grave so that we might have life. And he invites us to put our trust in him. He invites us to to reach out and take hold of him even if we don't yet fully understand. And so church, as we close, I encourage you to hear his invitation to make him the object of your faith, as recorded for us in Isaiah 43. Let me read just a few verses. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And so church, I invite you to trust in him. I'm not, I'm not just saying come to Jesus and, and, and receive salvation for the first time. I'm saying trust in him day in and day out. Grab onto that branch. Don't be afraid. This is what we celebrate at Advent, that Jesus 
came to be with us, that he is God with us. He is Yahweh with us. He has the authority and the power to, to rebuke the wind and the waves, to, to command them to stop, and they will listen. He's also the very same Yahweh who promises to be with us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. He invites us to trust him as we go through the waters, as we pass through the flames. So Trinity, trust him. Don't be afraid. He loves you, he cares for you, and he's with you. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are, you are with us. What makes Advent so amazing, what, what gives us hope is that you are fulfilling promises and sending us your son, Jesus, who is God with us. Lord, there are many of us who wrestle with the fear of storms in our lives, circumstances that seem overwhelming, situations that we can't see a conclusion to that, that we're comfortable with, and yet in the midst of that, you say, take hold of me in faith. Lord, your invitation is to come to you, all who are weary and heavy burdened, heavy laden, Lord. We, we are heavy laden, and we trust you, Lord, that you are you are a branch able to save us. And so, Lord, I just I, I pray this morning that even as we read the story of you, uh, of your son calming the wind and the waves, that we might that we might have the boldness and courage to make you the object of our faith. To realize what other things might try to uh, comfort us or give us security. But, Lord, help us to realize there is nothing but you, but Jesus alone who will give us the security we truly long for. That's who we see revealed in the book of Mark. That is what is truly miraculous. The Son of God, Yahweh himself, God with us, there in the boat, with each and every one of us. Help us to live by faith in that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.